Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Pete Fader is the Francis and Pei Yuan Chia Professor of Marketing at one of my alma maters, the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also one of the most well-known and highest-rated Wharton professors and someone I've gotten to collaborate with and have learned a lot from over the years. His expertise centers around the analysis of behavioral data to understand and forecast customer shopping and purchasing activities. He works with firms from a wide range of industries, including telecom, financial services, gaming, entertainment, retailing, and pharmaceuticals. He's the author of Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customer for Strategic Advantage, and co-author of the Customer Centricity Playbook with Sarah Toms. Pete co-founded a predictive analytics firm called Zodiac in 2015, which he sold to Nike in 2018. He then co-founded and continues to run Theta Equity Partners to commercialize his more recent work on customer-based corporate valuation. Among his many achievements, he was named by Advertising Age as one of its inaugural 25 marketing technology trailblazers in 2017 and was the only academic on that list. In this episode, he explains what customer lifetime value really is and why it should be central to your strategy. He challenges the idea that you should try to treat all customers equally well. And he lays out the first concrete steps that you should take right now to begin becoming a truly customer-centric business. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Fader. Awesome, Pete. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'd love just to give people a chance to get to know you a little bit personally. So I'd love if you could finish the sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that. How would you finish that sentence? Oh my, I'm a super nerdy data modeling. I'm that guy who just likes math and math trivia and stuff like that. I do my best to hide it, but you know, yes, and I have to be honest. But I really do believe that there's beyond the nerdy parts of data, there's some genuine insight and improved decision-making that can arise from it. And too often there's a disconnect there. Yeah, got it. And so I think that leads into the next question I wanted to ask you. I know that your specialty, your deep areas of interest and research, which we're going to go into, sit within marketing and data, but you're also a strategist. This is a strategy podcast. So what's your definition of strategy? You know, people mix up strategy and tactics all the time. It's not just going to be the thing that we do or how we do it. But for me, it's more the overarching theme that connects the things that we do. So not only what are we trying to accomplish on a big, broad, scale and how do we align our thinking, our people, our tactics, our metrics to help us achieve it. That's strategy. Mm -hmm. That brings us to your area of expertise and what you've been working on. I can answer this, but what are you most known for? Well, really two things. So one on the technical side is customer lifetime value, being able to build models of who's going to do what, when, for how long, and so on. And that's great. And I'm proud to be known for that because that is what I'm all about is playing with data and building models. But it's not enough. And so more recently, and maybe even more broadly and impactfully on a strategy side, is this idea of customer centricity. 
which means, and of course we can get into that, but get back to the strategy question, I don't want it to be just an improved way for marketers to decide which email to send to which person. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's tactics. And I want to think much broader than that. I want to think enterprise-wide. Heck, I want to think about the world, society as a whole. The idea that we're all customers, we're all selling things, but not all customers are created equal. And if we could really understand that basic idea and figure out how to lean into it and leverage it, that we can do better. We can actually make more money. We can make the world a better place. We can better align our tactics to the customers and other people and entities that we choose to serve. So it's this big, broad ambition of customer centricity that I'd love to talk about. So explain then customer centricity in your definition, because I know when I talk to people about customer centricity and we first started talking about it, it often is love every customer, do the right thing, you know, anyone that walks in the door, but you have a very different definition. I do, I do, I do. That certainly some of that is a part of customer centricity, but put it this way. It's not that we should center ourselves around every single customer. That sounds nice. That sounds romantic, but it's not realistic. Companies can't achieve it and they probably shouldn't achieve it because most of their customers, and this is true in any setting, B2B, B2C, product service, big enterprise versus mom and pop bodega, that not all customers are created equal. And there's a lot of them who actually don't want you to be centered around them. Like, leave me alone. Let let me just get my Pop-Tarts and get out of here. Not everyone wants to have a relationship, but some do. And understanding those differences, understanding which customers want the relationship, deserve the relationship, and what that relationship should look like. Not just, here's some more stuff you should buy, but surrounding them with a variety of products and services, some of which we may not even sell, to show them that we really want to have a true symbiotic relationship. That's what customer centricity is all about. Basically, it's which customers should we be centered around and how do we do so in a meaningful, holistic way? Can you give us an example of a company or brand that does it well or one that doesn't do it well just so that we can visualize it? Sure. So most companies don't do it well because most companies would say, yeah, we're customer centric. We love every one of our customers. We can't sleep at night or at least happy customers satisfied. And here's the way we show them the love. We cross sell and upsell. We give them the next best offer of the portfolio of things we sell. Here's the next thing that you should buy. That's not customer centricity. I mean, it can be if they love us and they really do want to buy all of our things in sequence. But in a lot of cases, that's not the way it works. So it really is figuring out who are those valuable customers and what are their broader wants and needs beyond just the stuff that we sell to them. Either how do we directly fulfill those needs or how do we help them as a trusted advisor figure out how those needs can be fulfilled? And in doing so, to deepen the relationship with them, to get them to hopefully get to the point where if there's an email coming from us, they actually want to read it. There's some chance that there's something genuinely useful and interesting and personally connecting to them. So there are a number of companies out there that do different parts of this pretty well. We can start with an old school company that's been doing this reasonably well for a long time. American Express as a good example. They really are trying to find a broader value from the relationship with you. A great example, I remember one time I got this box of high-end suntan lotion in the mail from American Express. Like, what? I have a little note saying, you know, you used to book a lot of travel with us. You haven't booked in a while. We hope that you'll do so soon. And here's something to make that trip a little bit better. 
So on one hand, it's just a reminder that we're out here, book with us. But it did have this value add. It wasn't very pushy. There was actually no direct solicitation with it. It was just a, hey, we're part of your life and you know we want to make it better. Little things like that can go a long way. And it's not only the external things we do, it's the internal things. It is truly, back to the word strategy, how do we align all parts of the organization around the effective delivery of products and services for those customers? You know, for too many companies, Companies. The marketing people are talking about stuff kind of like this, but the rest of the organization, they want nothing. For instance, in a lot of companies, the R&D people, the research and development people, they're just out there trying to come up with the next big thing. They're sitting around in the labs or putting stickies on whiteboards or just trying to come up with that next blockbuster. What's the thing that's going to sell a lot? That's not the way it should work in the customer-centric world. In the customer-centric world, it's more about, we got these really great customers over here. Let's develop products and services for them. Not necessarily for everybody, because they're different. Let's hope that other people want to buy it too. But let's align R&D around our understanding that not all customers are created equal. And again, examples of companies, one of my favorites would be Electronic Arts, the gaming company. They'd love to sell FIFA, World Cup soccer, and SimCity and Madden football to everybody, but they wisely recognize that not all customers are created equal. And when they develop games, they try to do it with their core customers in mind. And that takes a lot of skill, a lot of discipline, a lot of internal politicking to make that possible. It's not easy to do, but they've done it quite well. So I can see how aligning the company strategically and culturally around the right customers, or at least knowing that there are more or less valuable customers. That's the part two. Part one is how do you identify who the most valuable customers are? I see companies come up with a profile, give the person a name and and spend time with them in the kitchen. Tell us what's the approach. I'm so glad you asked that. I wish you could see your face just crunching your nose about this. Oh, I wish your listeners could see my face. The disdain for that. I hate it when companies say, yes, we understand our customers. And we have three types of customers. We have Working Wanda, Busy Betty, and Carpool Carla. And they come up with these ridiculous personas that they're just kind of making up or that the ad agency is making up for them, but are not necessarily really truly driven from a firm understanding of how their customers differ from each other and who's most valuable. So where it begins, but doesn't necessarily end, is customer lifetime value. So let's bring this to dollars and cents, not just our intuition about who the customer is. Because every company on the planet, or at least consumer-facing company, thinks that their focal customer are millennials. Yes, we're going after the millennials. So this is where we start with customer lifetime value. Let us project for each and every customer, how long are they going to contemplate doing business with us? How much business will they do? How much money will we make from them? So we want to project the future economic value from each and every customer and understand what those numbers are, understand how those numbers differ and understand. So what makes the more valuable customers different than the less valuable ones? Just to make sure that I'm following along. So I think of it as a discounted cash flow on a projected profit from one customer. That is it. I was going to say that, but I don't want to turn people off and get all accounty and financy on you here. But that is it. And the nice thing about it is that because it is kind of accounty and financy, it's also a nice way to build bridges to that part of the organization. So instead of having the people who control the balance sheet and income statements look at marketing with the same nose scrunched up disdain and saying, oh, 
all the money they're throwing out the window to do marketing in a very, very accountable way and starting at the customer level. What is the discounted cash flow, the discounted profitability from each and every customer? And again, understanding the differences across them and then how to leverage those differences to make more money than just to focus on the so-called average customer. Customer lifetime value is the way to really do that segmentation. Yep. Yep. Okay, so that's stage one. So step one is we calculate customer lifetime value over a population of customers or all customers. And then how do we get to Betty? The problem is that some companies will, if they do that at all, they'll kind of stop there and they'll say that, oh, look, our lifetime value is up or down on average. No averages in my world. We really want to understand the spread. We want to anticipate what it's going to look like. The funny thing is we always talk about 80-20 rules. And we know that something like that is true, that most of our customers are in and a small number of our customers are highly profitable. That is true. Maybe it's not as concentrated as 80-20, but yes. So let's understand what that pattern looks like and how does it vary across our business units and geographies and channels of acquisition and so on. And then let's look at those customers way over there on the right, the ones who will probably stay with us a long time, buy very often, spend a lot when they do, and ask ourselves, what makes them different in terms of how they use our product, in terms of how they talk about our product, perhaps demographics or psychographics, perhaps, probably not. And how do we acquire more customers like them? And so when you say way out in the right, what I'm picturing, therefore, there's a bell curve, that kind of normal curve goes up, goes down, and then all the way at the end, the value of those customers are sort of a spike or something like that. So let's start with the bell curve, okay? So everyone can picture that beautiful bell-shaped curve. Thing is, that's not the way it works with customers. So imagine that you take that bell curve and you drop a big, heavy weight on top of it, and it spreads out to both sides. And more of it will tend to spread over to the left, which is to say the less valuable customers. Like we said before, that's where 80% of your customers are going to be. Many, many of them are going to be one and done. They buy from you one time and that's it. They don't really need you. If they come back at all, it won't be for years. And there's not much you can do about that. It's not your fault. It's not that they hate you. It's not that you turned them away. It's not that you dissatisfied them. They're just passing through and that's okay. So most of the customers are going to be eh over there on the left. Then there will be that squirt over on the right. Right. They go pretty far out. And that's what we really want to understand. How far out are they? And again, what makes them different in terms of who they are, how they use our products, and what other products and services we can bring to them to help them have even more value. And so when you're saying customer-centric, what you're saying is we are built around them as opposed to built around a product. That is right. If we can figure out who they are and everything I've said now a million times, align our organization around them, strategy, not tactics that we can make more money in a sustainable, defendable, ethical manner than simply trying to be everybody's best friend or focusing on some kind of average customer. And it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally to most companies the way that strategy has tended to work, the way that finance and accounting have tended to work. Haven't really had that idea of, you know, focus on the right tail. So there's a lot of re-education that needs to take place with our internal colleagues, with our external stakeholders, and even with broader policymakers. I know you get this question a lot, but I'm going to ask it here. 
because there are people who have it, which is what about B2B companies? I mean, can you do this with a B2B company? Lower frequency of transactions, interactions, they're less emotionally driven, more functionally driven. What do you think? Absolutely. In fact, very often the best practices arise from B2Bs because if you think about a B2B company that sells very specialized, let's say, aircraft parts or something like that, they don't have many customers. There's only a small number of firms out there. So they're going to get to know each one of them quite well. And they will be naturally customer-centric and figuring out what other value to bring to them to know that when one of their customers is calling at two o'clock in the morning with an emergency, who's calling going to take then and who can wait until nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, so a lot of this stuff really happens naturally in the B2B setting. Uh, the fact that it's not as emotionally driven, the fact that it is more dollars and cents, there is a bit more accountability. That's all good. So basically what I'm trying to do is what will often happen on a smaller scale with a B2B company, again, smaller number of customers, fewer larger transactions, and show B2C companies how they can use data analytics and technology to basically replicate that, how they can achieve that kind of differential intimacy at full scale even when you have millions of customers instead of dozens. So yeah, we often look to B2B for the best practices and just try to emulate it, but just in a bigger, higher volume manner. How about an earlier stage business or product for which maybe we don't have customer? There you go. So that's where we start to hit some of the real limitations of it. So for an earlier stage company, let's face it, pretty much every company is formed around the product or the service, the better mousetrap that they invent. And that's great. You first want to get traction. You first want to sell it to pretty much anyone who will buy it. You know, you want to fill the funnel. You want to get a lot of, you know, beta testers out there to figure out what works. So early on, the idea of focusing on the product makes total sense. But at some point, when growth starts to plateau, when competition starts to enter the market, when you want to move from transactions to relationships, you got to start thinking about some of it. At least it might make sense to start thinking about some of this customer centricity stuff. And the problem is too many firms hit that plateau and say, okay, it's time to flip the switch. Let's do it now. Well, it might be too late. So even if you're not going to be doing the customer-centric thing right from day one, you need to at least start planting the seeds. You need to start building the infrastructure. You need to start tagging and tracking customers from day one so that if and when that need arises, it'll be much easier to start to pivot in that direction. So even when it's not the focal part of the strategy, you still want to be doing some effort and building towards it. That makes a lot of sense. What's something that you've changed your mind about? Well, you've changed my mind about a whole lot because remember, I'm mostly the CLB guy and all this customer centricity stuff is just a vehicle to get companies to want to use my models and all that sort of thing. You know, 10 years ago, and I really was forming this idea of customer centricity and pulling all the pieces together, putting lifetime value and the other mathy, nerdy things that I do at the forefront. I really did believe that if I could just give you the lifetime value magic wand and wave it over your customers' heads and see what they're worth, then money would come raining down from the sky. It'll be easy to sort them out and do the right things with the right customers. And that's just so laughably naive. And so I've realized that it's actually much harder and much more important to get that organizational alignment, to create a customer-centric corporate culture. A lot of that qualitative soft stuff that I have zero expertise on, but at this point I have tremendous appreciation for. Until we get those pieces in place, let's not even pull out that CLV magic wand because it'll be a little bit premature to start using it. Yep, I got it. 
Well, I've got a ton of questions. We're approaching the top of our time with you. What do you want to leave us with? A song? Sure. <laughs> what do we need to hear? Some enchanted evening, <laughs> you may meet a stranger. It may or may not be valuable. No, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that will just turn off the customers. So I talk about the alignment and the culture and all that. I think a lot of people at this point are shaking their heads like, yeah, that's the hard thing. Yeah, that's what we're striving for. But at the same time, that's not enough either. At some point, once you do get those elements in place, or at least have a plan for it, then you have to bite the bullet. And at some point, if you really want to do the things I'm talking about, you're going to have to get into the data. You're going to have to get into the models. You're going to have to realize that we need to quantify this, that we want to be able to look our finance and accounting people in the eye and have them not only trust us, but respect us and say, yeah, that's cool what you're doing over there. And that's only going to happen when we start getting into the data and the models. So it might not be job one, but ultimately to find long run success, it's still a really important piece of the puzzle. And I continue to struggle with that, getting companies to really buy into that part, try at all kinds of angles, whether it's writing books, whether it's founding companies, looking at lots of examples and anecdotes. We're making a lot of progress. We're much further along than we were even a few years ago, but there's still a long way to go. So long way to go. A man with a mission. Thank you so much for being here with us, Pete. Kyle, thank you so much. You do a great job of spreading this gospel and helping to translate some of these ideas into a language and a feeling that people can really appreciate. So I appreciate it and I hope you'll keep up the good work. Happy to spread the word as much as we can. You're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.